Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. go ahead and start. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, as we continue to move through the books of the New Testament and look at Hebrews and James and possibly uh, even Peter, we ask you to be with us and help us to be able to understand not only what it says, but what it means for us in our own lives. Help us to be able to apply and to practice uh, the great message that the Lord gives us in his word. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be looking at the letter of the Hebrews, and so we'll just get straight into it. Uh, Hebrews is a somewhat complicated and theological letter. It was primarily written for Jewish Christians who wanted to justify why they should become Jewish Christians and still looking back to their Jewish heritage. And the author of Hebrews was trying to show that if you are a Jewish Christian, then you were following what God was planning all along, even from the old days, even from the old covenant. And he's showing that this new covenant in Jesus and that new priesthood in Jesus was actually uh, predicted and foreshadowed in many of the writings of the Old Testament. So the date of the book of Hebrews is between 70 and 80 AD. So this is now running up around 50 years after uh, the time of Jesus' resurrection. And so at this time, the theological construct of the Christian and the Catholic Church actually has already begun. And St. Paul's letters have begun to be disseminated, and so this, this theology has developed from the earliest days. And now we're at a point where there's starting to become a bit of a separation between uh, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. For the first uh, few decades, actually, it would have been very natural, normal for people to be participating in synagogue and and sometimes even temple worship and also being Christian and celebrating the Eucharist and doing, you know, the Christian worship. And over time, there began to be a separation as more and more the Christians realized that they didn't have to do all those prescriptions that were listed in the Old Testament Torah. And the Jews were realizing that the Christian faith was actually not um, quite the same as the Jewish faith. It wasn't just a, a, a new development from, from Judaism, that there was something um, different and unique about it. So in Jamnia, around, the, uh, around 70 AD in the city in, in Israel, they actually had a statement saying that Christians can no longer be considered Jews in good standing, and so from that point, they were exiled, um, basically kicked out of the synagogue, and because of that, the Christians needed to have a response. Actually, for a large part, that's what the book of Matthew was about. It was showing how you would be a good Jew and a good Christian, you know, that to be a good Christian is to really be a good Jew, and so a little bit of this is going into the idea of Hebrews, but they're approaching it in a different way. Because the author of Hebrews also wants to show that Jesus is not only just a Messiah, but he is much greater than anyone would have guessed. And then he demonstrates that scripturally as well as uh, philosophically and theologically. And so he takes his time doing this. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews, you may have heard um, St. Paul is the author of Hebrews. Traditionally, that has you know, kind of been in the mix. And there have been arguments for and against Paul writing it in the Western Church. Think, you know, Western Roman Empire. And, uh, but that was not much the case in the East, in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking world. And the reason is, is because the book of Hebrews really is different than St. Paul and his letters in many different ways. And although some people still try to connect some of the thought of St. Paul to the letter of the Hebrews... Most scholars actually see it as a different type of genre. 
you know, that it's a, a different author for a different set of purposes and reasons. And for that reason, they say that who it probably was was someone in what they call the Greek diaspora. And so that would be the, a Jewish person in the Greek-speaking world. You know, so at the time, remember, after Alexander the Great, the Greeks um, had a big, strong cultural influence. And then later, with the Roman Empire, Greek was still a predominant language and culture, even within the Roman Empire. And so the areas around what's present-day Turkey, Greece, Egypt, had a very, very strong um, Greek identity and culture. They also would have been very strong with the um, philosophy of Greece, and especially Plato, who was especially popular during that time. So for those reasons, they think that the author was probably a Jewish um, person, a Jewish convert into Christianity, and because of the strong philosophical sense, um, they, they would guess that he is part of this diaspora Jew with a strong Greek influence, and especially an Alexandrian, which is a city in northern Egypt, which had a very strong uh, Greek culture because it was founded by Alexander the Great. And so anyway, they say that uh, the author may have been an Alexandrian Jew who became a convert into Christianity. Whether or not he was an Alexandrian convert, he obviously was someone who was Jewish and, you know, was Christian. And so that's kind of the background. They say that it's possible that it was written in Italy, and that's only because toward the end, chapter 13, verse 24, there's a little phrase in there that says, God's holy people in Italy send greetings, which kind of implies that the person's writing from Italy. And so that possibly is where it is. When you're looking at the time that it was written, I said it was anywhere between 70 and 80 AD, and that's just a guess. The, the thing is, is probably earlier more than later. It, it, different times through uh, biblical scholarship, they tend to adjust dates back and forth. But we do know that it's after 63 AD because it, the letter mentions Paul's imprisonment letters. But it seems that it could have been even before 70 AD because it doesn't specifically mention the temple destruction. And it would be a perfect opportunity to do that because if you're trying to say that the old covenant is passing away and the new covenant is taking over, incorporating the old into the new, then that would be a perfect example of that by saying that, look, you know, even the temple was destroyed. That means that even in God's plan, this is part of the way that you know, the Christian faith is, is being incorporating the old into the new. Of course, there's also the, uh, uh, the possibility that it was such a sensitive topic that it was probably easier and better not to bring up the destruction of the temple as a reason why someone should become Christian because that would be something that would be so hard uh, for a Jewish person in that day to just accept as, as something that would be a positive sign. So anyway, they, they don't know for sure, but anyway, if you're in the 70 ballpark, you're probably pretty close. Once again, I mentioned the audience being Jewish Christians, and um, there is pretty much of a universal agreement that that was the primary audience of the letter to the Hebrews, and perhaps rabbis who converted to Christianity, you know, that they wanted to have some sort of grounding, because as a rabbi who converts a little, you know, to bring in the Christian uh, way of doing things, there would be some tension with other rabbis, family members, and maybe even culturally speaking, for them to go back to the Jewish ways. And so they needed to justify why a, being a good Jew would be a good Christian Jew. And so this is a bit of an argument to help, especially those who happen to have been Jewish priests. Because if you think about what the Jewish priests did, they, had, they were offering sacrifices. They had not only a socially um, a very strong position, but what they did ritually was very important. And so for them to leave that behind to become a Christian priest, it would be a different type of mentality. It would be a different order of doing things. And for that reason, once again, they would want to have some sort of justification about why that switching over would be something along you know, the plan of God, you know, the new covenant dispensation. Um, when I say dispensation, I probably should describe what that means. It just means, you know, God's way of doing things, you know, part of the way that God's plan unfolds. Okay, so we do have some basic, basic themes throughout the, uh, the book. First of all, Jesus is higher than all creation, 
and therefore divine. Okay, so Jesus is not only a Messiah, but he is higher than all creation. And, and of course, the first few chapters are going to show that. Um, he is also divine. You know, he's equal to the Father. Jesus is the new Moses leading his people. All right, just as the, um, the old, you know, Moses led their people into freedom, well, Jesus, who is the new Moses, leads his people into freedom as well. You know, the gospel freedom of Christ. Um, also, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Whereas in the old dispensation, you know, the old covenant, you had to repeatedly offer sacrifice. And the person who offered the sacrifice as well as the sacrifice itself would never be perfect. Therefore, you had to do it repeatedly over the years. Whereas Jesus' one sacrifice of himself on the cross was was sufficient once and for all for all of the sin of humanity because he's divine and because he's greater than all creation. And that one sacrifice is sufficient. So it's not necessary to repeatedly offer sacrifices in the same way that they had to do in the Old Testament. Um, Incidentally, when we talk about the Mass, you may have heard that description, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And doesn't it seem that we're repeatedly offering sacrifices? But, you know, we really don't. The the theology of the Mass is we represent the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to the Father. So, really, we are in line with the way we celebrate Mass, with the theology and the understanding of the book of Hebrews, that the one sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient, but we are applying it throughout time by representing that one sacrifice to the Father in the Holy Spirit. So anyway, a little side note there. But anyway, that one sacrifice is sufficient. Jesus is the new priesthood that is before and after Aaron. Okay, the old Aaron, I mean the old priesthood, began with, you know, Moses' brother Aaron. And from that point, you had the Aaronic priesthood. There was also the Levites. They came around the same time. But the priesthood had a beginning, you know, because Abraham was obviously before Aaron. And there were still sacrifices being offered. But if you're thinking that, according to the author of the Hebrews, if you're thinking that um, the, you know, the, the law of Moses and the sacrifices of Moses you know, is the beginning and the end of everything Jewish, then you're forgetting everything that went before Moses. And so the author is basically saying that there was a beginning to the Aaronic priesthood and there will be an end to the Aaronic you know, priesthood of Aaron. And the beginning, you know, goes, you know, before Aaron, and the ending comes with Jesus and the new priesthood. All right, so that just kind of shows a little bit of the uh, framework of that. So then the last point is this new worship reflects the new present reality. All right, so whereas the, you know, the, the worship of, of Moses in the temple and in the, in the synagogues and you know, the uh, priesthood of Aaron that coincided with the present reality. Well, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, those things have to change because the Messiah brings about a new covenant. Therefore, the worship needs to coincide with what Jesus did. All right, make sense? See, we're not even into the text yet, but you can see this is kind uh, kind of important and somewhat deep. Okay, so first of all, let's... uh, to start going through it, I guess. So the opening line, actually, really gives you an indication of where the author is going. At many moments in the past, and by many means, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets. But in our time, the final days, he has spoken to us through the person of his son. Okay, so that opening line is saying, in the past, God spoke through these various ways, through prophets and, you know, through different means. And Today, he speaks through his son. Okay, so there's, there's a difference. In the past, it was like this, but now, it's like this. Okay, so, so who is the son? Well, the son is Jesus, of course, and he is almighty and on high and greater than the angels. And he mentions that the angels, primarily, their job is to minister to human beings. You know, so he's talking about um, what these angels, you know, were called to do. And then later he says, he says, well, if you're looking at what angels are and then you look at what Jesus is, you'll notice that Jesus is much higher 
than, than any of the angels. And then he gives a bunch of reasons. You know, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and this day I have fathered you or begotten you. I shall be a father to him, and he a son to me. And again, when he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God pay homage to him. And so once he's just going through and showing scripture verse, scripture verse, and his whole point is, you know, the angels are nowhere near as great as the son of God who is Jesus, the Messiah. So now in, in the Jewish mindset, they put angels above all priests and all human leaders and this sort of thing. And so what the book of Hebrews says is, well, if you look at what the angels do, they're messengers, their primary role is to bring God's message down to earth. You know, so they are very important and, and you know, they are um, extremely exalted. But the Son of God, who is Jesus, who is also divine, is, is infinitely greater than any of the angels. All right, so that's his first point. And then he says, if God demands obedience to prophets, then all the more he demands obedience from his son. So if you think about the logic there, it makes sense. Okay, looking back, okay, so Moses came on the scene and the prophets came on the scene and they told Israel, this is what we need to do. And Israel had to be accountable to that because God spoke through the prophets. Well, if that's the case with the old covenant, with the law and the prophets, how much more do you think that's the case when we are no longer speaking mere prophets, but God's own son. You know, so once again, this is adding a little kick that if we want to be good Jews, we have to be obedient to God and his plan. And if we had to be obedient to the prophets, how much more obedient do you think he expects us to be when he speaks through his son? Okay, so you're following the logic. Jesus is greater than the angels. When Jesus speaks, we better listen. Right, so that's kind of the idea there. Okay, because Jesus is human, though, he also saves humanity. Okay, so we see this, chapter 2, verse 14. Since all the children share in the same nature, he too shared equally in it, so that by his death he could set aside him who had held the power of death, namely the devil, and set free all those who had been held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Okay, because Jesus was divine, he was able to act in a way that could you know, conquer even death. But because he was human, he could lift up our humanity to a level that would not be possible if he wasn't both of those at the same time. You following me on that? Okay. This is like a little theology course, I know. But um, actually, this is one of those things like St. Anselm talked about it too, that, you know, well, you know, we need Jesus to be human and divine because if he's not both of those things, we cannot be saved. Because we need him to be divine, because he's infinite, and because he's infinite, he has power over life and death. But we need him to be human, because we are the ones that sinned against an infinite God. And so if we sin against an infinite God, you can't take finite beings and somehow account for that. You need an infinite being, who is one of us, who can lift us out of that. So Anselm was basically saying that's philosophically a proof why Jesus has to be both human and divine. And that's why he was uh, making the point, because there, are, there always has been this tendency through history where people will say, well, Jesus was divine, but he wasn't really human. You know, or Jesus was human, but he wasn't really divine. And if either of those extremes are correct, then that would mean that we are not saved. You know, so that's why the church has been very consistent with that. Okay, so Jesus is fully in glory, but his victory on earth isn't fully actualized yet. And so he's fully victorious, but there will come a time in the future when he comes again. All right, so this is the in-between time. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he conquered everything, he's the Lord of the universe, but there's still this in-between time before everything that he did becomes fully realized and actualized, and that will happen at the end of time when Jesus comes back, gets rid of sin and death forever, and we have the new heavens and the new earth. So we're living in this in-between time where we are um, living within the grace of Jesus' death and resurrection, but it hasn't been fully realized yet. Okay, so Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. So Jesus is not only higher than, than uh, the angels, but Jesus is higher than Moses, right? So the whole 
covenant of Moses with the, you know, the Torah. You know, you think the Ten Commandments and the, you know, 613 individual laws and all the rituals and, and all the rites and the sacrifices. Well, those were all from Moses. You know, of course, God told Moses to do this, but um, since Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses, just as he's infinitely greater than the angels, once again, you know, the idea that this would be folded over into the new covenant would make sense. All right, and there's a, um, a bit of an explanation for that too. People entered into the rest with Moses, right, when they went into the promised land, and they entered into their rest, right? When they finally entered into the promised land, that was a fulfillment of the promise. With Jesus, we enter into our rest by his saving action. Ultimately, that would be heaven, but even when we're on earth, we're still entering into his rest, the peace that Christ offers us through the new covenant. You know, forgiveness of sins, the, you know, being a children of God, and through baptism, the sacraments, and all that show that that rest that we have, um, that the old covenant was just a, a dim reflection of the greatness of the new. And, and this, this theme actually comes about because it's, it's um, similar to this Platonic type of philosophy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Plato was a, a Greek in the classic uh, Greek era, you know, mid-300s B.C. But his philosophy was, was very powerful. We, we pr- pretty much know of, most people do at least, there's Socrates, there's Plato, and there's Aristotle. For most of us, I think we would, we would say that Aristotle's probably the most important of the three. But in this day and age, Plato would have been the most important of the three. He was much more influential. And Plato taught that everything here on earth is, is a dim reflection of a greater reality. And the way he explained it is he said, let's say, for example, that there's a cave, and you've got a candle, and you've got a candle that's facing the outside, and so the outside reflects through the candle, and the light illuminates on the wall on the inside of the cave then you have a reflection of a reality that's outside of the cave, but all you can see is the inside of this wall. And, he, and Plato was saying that's kind of like what we're living in. This is our living experience. We have a dim reflection. So we see beauty, but we don't see beauty itself. We see truth, but we don't see truth itself. And he was saying that this greater reality exists, but even on earth we can see a dim reflection of that. And so what the author of the Hebrews says is he's using this same analogy saying that, you know, when we're celebrating all this, you know, our, our worship, our, you know, the mass, when we're um, participating in this, these heavenly actions when we're here on earth, we are seeing a dim reality of what really exists. So just as Plato's cave analogy, let's, let's say, for example, that we're celebrating the mass. Well, what it appears to us is we have like bread and wine and we know that that's you know, the body and blood of Christ and we have the word of God that we hear and we receive. But what we're really participating in is the heavenly worship. It's just we don't um, fully experience it like we would if we were in heaven. Does that make sense? So it's real, but we're experiencing um, kind of the shadow, the, the, the dim reality. But anyway, he's just using Platonic language to show this. And so he's also showing it with the Old Testament prophets. Um, Like Joshua led his people into the promised land, and Jesus leads the people into the promised land, where Joshua was the dim reality of the full reality of Jesus. And then same with Moses. Well, Moses was a servant, Jesus was the son, so Moses was this great prophet, but, you know, he was just a dim reflection of the greater reality of, of Jesus. So a human priest represents himself and he offers sacrifice for himself and for the others that come to him to offer sacrifice. Therefore, they are limited because they're human, they're finite. So they have to offer sacrifice over and over again. Because Jesus is sinless, because he's the son of man and the son of God, he is able to offer sacrifice in a way that's on a whole new level than human sacrifice. And so this is another argument why, you know, if we're going to be good Jews, if we transfer over to the new covenant, then we're no longer going to be participating 
in rites of sacrifice that can no, they cannot fully accomplish what they want. But because the new sacrifice is Jesus, who is human and divine, and divine, that sacrifice of Jesus' death and resu- resurrection can accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Okay, so add up a bunch of finite stuff. You'll never get infinite. But if you have infinite to start with, then, you know, that's the goal, infinite God, then Jesus can do it. Human beings, repeated sacrifices can never add up to infinite. So he's, he's using that example. But the case of the priesthood actually goes much deeper than that, and this is, goes back to your Melchizedek question. Who's this floaty Melchizedek guy? Well, there's a, a, an additional character in the book of Hebrews, starting at chapter 7, and uh, this particular um, priest, his name is Melchizedek. So Melchizedek comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. This is the time when Abraham is on the scene. So Abraham leaves Ur in Mesopotamia, comes through and settles into the promised land for the first time. So this is the beginning of what would, what would form Israel. This is the beginning of Israel's religion, their culture, their identity is in Abraham. So as, as Abraham settles into the land, he wants to offer sacrifice. So what does he do? He finds the priest of Salem. Salem was the, uh, um, the town that would eventually become Jerusalem. At that time, it was Salem. What does Melchizedek offer for sacrifice? Bread and wine. Okay, so if Abraham went to Melchizedek to offer sacrifice for him, then that implies that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I need to take a break and get some water. Okay, so Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham went to Melchizedek to offer sacrifice. Well, in that case, though, we have Abraham who was before the priest of Aaron, you know, because um, Abraham was around around 1850 B.C. Moses was around 1250. And air conditioning. Okay, so if Moses was, a, Moses was around 1250, Abraham was around 1850, and Abraham was a defining person that began um, the Jewish people, then that would imply that if you're going to be a good Jew, you wouldn't necessarily have to be according to the priesthood of Aaron because there, w- there may have been some kind of priesthood that predated that, right? Well, it seems that Melchizedek was a priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek predated the priests of Aaron. And with that in mind, well, where did Melchizedek come from? They don't know. He just kind of pops into the scene. Abraham has him offer sacrifice, and then all of a sudden he disappears. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, this is an eternal priesthood, unlike the priesthood of Aaron, which has a beginning and an end. So the, so the priesthood of Melchizedek is an eternal priesthood. Now what's interesting about this is if you go to the Psalms, you'll even notice that they refer to the Messiah as being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what Hebrews is doing, he's just connecting the dots here, and he's saying, well, Melchizedek is an ancient priesthood that was not canceled out by the priesthood of Aaron because it had no beginning and it has no end. That was the prefiguration of the priesthood that would be in Jesus Whereas Aaron's priesthood begins and ends at the time of the Messiah. So it begins with Aaron, it ends at the time of the Messiah. So therefore, if you're going to be a good Jew, then now that the priesthood of Aaron is, is superseded by the priesthood of Jesus the Messiah, according to the order of Melchizedek, then this is the order of priesthood we need to follow from now on. You follow the logic there? Does that make sense? It, it's subtle, I know. 
but you have to understand this is this is somewhat of a rabbinic argument because what they do is like a good rabbi would look back into the old testament and they would look for patterns and those patterns can explain the present reality and so the author of the hebrews is saying you know, basically, look, you know, we have this eternal priesthood that we belong to. So it's not like this priesthood came out of nowhere. It's actually the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, which was around before the time of Aaron. Aaron's priesthood was, was time limited. It has a starting point and a stopping point, whereas the priesthood that we celebrate is an eternal priesthood through the Messiah. And it was predicted even from the time of Melchizedek. It was shown even in what he did. He offered bread and wine, just like in our Modern priesthood, we offer, you know, consecrated bread and wine, which is the body and blood of Christ. And just as um, Jesus, you know, offers himself as that one eternal sacrifice, and we present that, you know, represent that to the Father in the, in the new covenant, that this is really the fulfillment. So if you want to be a good Jew and you want to be a Christian, this is the way to go. So it's giving uh, food for argument so that the, uh, the rabbis that had become Christians— and, and become the Christian priests, more likely than not, you know, that they have a good justification for doing that. Okay, so that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of the high point there. So, so he had no father, he had no mother, he had no ancestry, and he remains a priest forever. So, so there's Melchizedek. Abraham offered tithes through him, to him. Psalm 110 speaks about this new priesthood that would arise. Therefore, the old law is perfected in the new law. Okay, so now he goes to the specifics. Okay, so what kind of sacrifice are we talking about here? Okay, first of all, starting from chapter 8, he talks about this new priesthood and the new sanctuary. Now this, keep in mind the imagery that I was talking about with Plato and the cave. And, and the shadow, you know, and, and the greater reality. So Christ is the mediator. Okay, so that's chapter 8, verse 6. As it is, he has been given a ministry far superior, as is in the covenant in which he is the mediator, which is founded on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no room for a second one to replace it. And in fact, God does find fault with them, and he says, so anyway, there's the description. And so by speaking of the new covenant, he implies that the first one is old, and anything old and aging is ready to disappear. Okay, so anyway, he's kind of showing this. It's not necessarily replacement, as if, you know, the old covenant has no purpose or place or anything like that. It's just saying that, that the new covenant supersedes the old Okay, so Christ enters into the the heavenly sanctuary by which the old is just a shadow of. Okay, so let's look at that language. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. By this, the Holy Spirit means us to see that as long as the old tent stands, the way into the holy place is not opened up. It is a symbol for this present time. Okay, symbol, remember the shadow and, you know, a dim representative. None of the gifts and sacrifices offered under these regulations can possibly bring any worshiper to perfection in his conscience. They are rules about outward life connected with food and drink and washing at various times, which are in force only until the time comes to set things right. Remember the temporary thing? So it's temporary until those have been fulfilled. But now Christ has come as the high priest of all the blessings which were to come. He has passed through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this created order. And he has entered the sanctuary once and for all, taking with him not the blood of goats and bull calves, but his own blood, having won an eternal redemption. Okay, so do you see the the pattern here? He's saying that the old covenant sacrifices were a dim reflection of the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus as the one mediator between human beings and the Father. And so just as all these things were dim reflections, the new sacrifice and the new sanctuary actually is the fulfillment of what the old uh, were shadows of. All right, keep going here. So anyway, the law is a reflection of things yet to come. 
So if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says that. So since the law, now remember the law means the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So since the law contains no more than a reflection of the good things which were still to come, and no true image of them, it is quite incapable of bringing the worshipers to perfection by means of the same sacrifices repeatedly offered year after year. Did you notice the language in that? Talking about not able to bring to perfection. Um, it was just an image. It's incapable of bringing to perfection. And anyway, the, the whole concept kind of reflects that. So repeated sacrifice could not accomplish its goal, but the one sacrifice, once and for all, does accomplish its goal, which is our salvation. All right, therefore, we have entered into the sanctuary. So from this point now, he's just saying that, okay, now that I've got you this far, this is where we need to stand firm. This is where you don't apologize for your faith. This is where you persevere in your faith. This is where you don't lose heart because the reward is near. Okay, so chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, there's a kind of a little description there. Do not lose your fearless, fearlessness now, then, since the reward is so great. You will need perseverance if you are to do God's will and gain what he promised. Now remember, you've got people who, the primary audience of this letter, is they're struggling with this idea. Do I revert back to be Jewish or do I stay on being Christian? And, and so the whole point here is like he's trying to show that if you're going to be Christian, you're going to be the good Jew following the fullness of the covenant. The old was bound to pass away and it was predicted it would be so. So now your primary role is to persevere in faithfulness to the new covenant that God reveals to you. So don't lose heart and remember your reward. And then he says, remember our ancestors who were the heroes in faith. And so he mentions Abel, or Abel, I said that in Spanish, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, all of them were, were heroes because they were led by faith. And through faith they acted. And he's saying that we in the new covenant have to be like those Old Testament heroes and therefore be bold in our faith and do what is right and even, you know, persevere, even if we happen to uh, um, have some conflict or, or persecution because of it. And then he says, okay, not only all those, but look at Jesus' own example, how he remained firm. You know, that that was something that was also for our sake, so that we could look to his example and persevere in our own faith. And then uh, he throws in a little line about, you know, entertaining angels. So, chapter 13, verse 2. So it says, Continue to love one another like brothers, and remember always to welcome strangers. For by doing this, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So there you go. Yeah, that's kind of a, a nice little line he just threw in, but, but it is an interesting thought. So, you're caring for a stranger... You don't even know who that stranger is, that that stranger could be, you know, an angel. But anyway, it's a nice thought. But you get the point, right? This is primarily a book to help people to be able to, first of all, those who were Jewish converts into Christianity, especially the Jewish rabbis, would have the ability to not only be Christian, but have a good reason theologically and scripturally to be able to justify that and philosophically. So that was the main point and purpose of the book of Hebrews. So now you can read it again. It'll probably make a whole lot more sense to you. So before we go to James, does anyone have any questions about any of this? Oh, the book of Hebrews, that's New Testament. He just re he writes a lot about the Old Testament, but it was written after the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. This is new stuff. Yeah, this is uh, toward the end of the New Testament. So it's basically he's referencing. He's referencing the Old Testament. 
because he needs to justify the reason for having a New Testament. When I say testament, I should say covenant, but Okay, so let's look at the book of James. Actually, James is easy reading. Did anyone read James while we were while you're at it? Yeah, the the good thing about James is it's it's not like the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a little little dense, but James is is pretty straightforward and pretty easy to understand. It's basically like um, James is given a homily, and it, it's very much like a sermon. Um, James belongs to a genre of the New Testament, which we call Catholic letters. The word Catholic, you all know, it doesn't just mean like Roman Catholic, but it means universal. So these are letters that were meant uh, for the universal church, whereas a lot of letters of St. Paul were meant for individual churches or even individuals. And in this case, the, the Catholic letters are letters that are addressed to all the churches, or at least more than, a, more than a couple of them. In this case, we have the letter of James. And when you ask the question, who is James? Um, the traditional answer for that is that is James, the brother of the Lord, mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, or Acts of the Apostles, verse 12, verse, I mean, chapter 12, verse 17. The brother of the Lord is in a loose sense. Brother means relative. And so it, it was probably one of Jesus' cousins, which meant that he probably was around Jesus in the town of Nazareth with the family when he was growing up, um, later became one who was a follower of Jesus, and later became um, a, a real leader in the church. And even Paul, after he went to Arabia, after his conversion, when he kind of got blinded in the light, and Jesus said, why do you persecute me? And then he, he went and got his eyesight back enough to be able to function and then went to Arabia for a while. He came back to Jerusalem, he met with Peter, and he met with James. So James, the brother of the Lord, was a very well-respected um, leader in the Jerusalem church, but not only that, it seems that he was pretty well-respected even among Jews in his area, that he had a pretty good rapport with both at the same time. He eventually became martyred, and it was probably around 62 A.D., and this is, uh, um, it, it may have been earlier than that, but they, they tend to think that it was around that time. So if you're going to date this letter, it would be better to say that it happened sometime before 62 AD, obviously. So if James were going to write a letter, he would write it before he was martyred. Common sense would say that. People guess 58, but no one really knows for sure. But they do know that it seems that in the style in which it was written, that it was, it was later rather than earlier. There were some issues with James being universally accepted, and there may be some reasons for that. One is it, it might be the, the style and the format of it. He does reference um, St. Paul, and because he's referencing St. Paul, some people may have looked at it as if, like, James and Paul were arguing about something, and that Paul... Um, was right, therefore we should reject James. But that's not really what was going on. Um, it was just both of them were showing something from different perspectives. And as Peter says, people misunderstand Paul all the time. So James was trying to correct uh, uh, people to take Paul to an extreme. And that extreme would be um, you're saved by faith, but your actions make no difference. You know, So James is just showing a correction there that that if you are a person of faith, you have to have good works to go with it. All right, We talked about this a little bit in the book of Romans, that when Paul was talking about salvation through faith apart from works of the law, what he was referring to were the Jewish law ceremonies and rituals, things like circumcision, and you know, primarily that's what he was referring to. He, he wasn't saying that good deeds are not a part of faith. And so what James is doing is he's, he's just kind of correcting that, saying, you know, well, if you have faith, you have to have good deeds because if you don't have good fe- good deeds, then your faith is dead. You know, it's his words. But anyway, this was the uh, you know the only doctrinal aspect, and because of that, um, there may have been some discrepancy about the early church um, accepting it. The other is that it it was different than Saint Paul's writings because it was more like a sermon, so there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, 
information about Jesus or the gospel, but it was more about how to live out the gospel. Just like there were other books that didn't make it into the New Testament, but they that's because they were dealing with historical things or uh, they were dealing with, uh, you know, like letters to Clement and this sort of thing, that uh, Shepherd of Hermes or the Didache would be a great example, that it's the Didache was a letter that was written around the time of other New Testament letters, but the style was was one that was reflecting back on the gospel rather than being part of the first apostolic tradition. So anyway, for whatever it's work, whatever it's worth, um, there was a little bit of discussion there. The, the interesting thing about James is that although it was a, a very Jewish letter. Um, it's written in a gr- very good Greek grammar, and it's written in a diatribe style, which Paul does that too. You know, so do you mean we should sin? We should sin all the more? No, you know. So it's almost like you've got this this dialogue going on between one and the other, like an imaginary dialogue. And so he's writing in this, which is a uh, it's a Greek way of writing. So not only does he have a pretty good Greek. Um, grammar and all, but he's writing in a a somewhat Greek manner. Um, Not typically a Galilean Jewish style of writing. And so for that reason, some people say, well, maybe it wasn't really James who wrote it after all. But that's kind of the minority. Most people would say that James is the one that wrote it. And, you know, being anyone who is is in that culture in that time, it's pretty hard to get away from a Hellenistic um, culture that's all around you. It would be like... uh, if we had someone who's a, you know, Hispanic, but they actually speak very good English, well, you'd say, well, they live in the United States. You know, it's like the culture is all around them, but they still are Hispanic. So it'd probably be something like that. Okay, so the purpose, this was written for Jewish Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Mostly, though, it would be written for Jewish Christians that would have a little bit of a Palestinian influence. So that would mean like Syria or Egypt or the area up around Israel, because the the style and the message tends to be um, genuinely Middle Eastern in, in its in what what's important and what he's trying to get at. So the theology assumes the Old Testament knowledge. All right? He doesn't go to great length to describe what the Old Testament says or or make references toward it. He assumes people already know it ahead of time, because he's talking to an educated Jewish population. And so, therefore, he just assumes people know it. He uses Jewish wisdom literature and applies Jesus to that. All right, so if you look at, like, Proverbs and, you know, the Book of Wisdom and, and these different books in the Old Testament that, that have to do with wisdom, he is going to use that style but apply it to Jesus' message and gospel. Okay, so the uh, Christology is interesting, meaning the description of who and what Jesus is all about. It, it tends to be um, very Jewish in its, in its approach. Therefore, some people used to think that it was less developed. But it's not that it was left, less developed. It was just explaining Jesus through a uniquely Jewish culture. Right? It's just like if you're going to describe Jesus to a philosophical Greek, you might use you know, language like some you know, that St. Paul used. If you're going to do it to the Jewish audience, then you're going to use language that would more line up with a Jewish rabbinical style. And since he's talking a lot about morals and it's more of a a sermon than it is, you know, new theology, then he's not going to need to really rehash everything that's already been out there about who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah he is. Once again, he kind of takes that for granted as well. Okay, so the content, if we're going to look at this. So first of all, He says that we need to persevere in trial and that that leads to faith. He also says that the origin of temptation is not God, but it comes from the inside of the sinner who is attracted and then falls into it. Because at the time, people would say things like, God's tempting me. And so he says, no, God does not tempt. You know, that comes from the sinfulness within you and the fact that you're acting on that sinfulness is not God's fault. You know, so it's not like God's trying to bring you out of um, you know, a, a good grace. 
you know, that, that temptation doesn't come from God. So anyway, that's the other one. And then he talks about controlling the tongue, which is uh, very good advice probably throughout history. You know, the, you know, how the tongue can bless on one hand and curse on the other. So just to give you a few examples of this. So, um, so my brothers, consider it a great joy when trials of many kinds come upon you. For you well know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must complete its work so that you will become fully developed, complete, not deficient in any way. So there's a purpose for persecution, and that helps us to persevere in our faith. So anyway, he's showing the silver lining, I guess. Also, the origin of temptation. If we go to chapter 1, verse 13. Never when you are being put to the test say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not put anyone to the test. Everyone is put to the test by being attracted and seduced by that person's own wrong desire. Then the desire conceives and gives birth to sin, and when sin reaches full growth, it gives birth to death. So in other words, he's saying, if you sin, it's your fault. It's not God's fault. Anyway, I think we kind of know that nowadays, I hope. But you still hear this sometimes, you know. Well, God shouldn't have set that person in my path, you know. It's like, well, God didn't set that person in your path to have you sin. But anyway, then we also have the uh, how to control the tongue, which has some good advice for this too. Someone who does not trip up in speech has reached perfection and is able to keep the whole body on a tight rein. Once we put a bit in the horse's mouth to make it do what we want, we have the whole animal under our control. Okay, so it's saying, okay, your tongue's kind of like the, the bit on the, the horse, right? If we have control of our tongue, we can guide ourselves so that we're not going to do anything stupid. Just as you would, you would kind of keep the bit on the horse so you can guide the animal to where you want it to go, you know, if your tongue's free-flowing and all over the place, meaning your language, you know, then, then that means you're, you're going to be pretty explosive and you're going to um, not keep your whole self under control. All right, so then you go to verse 9. I think this is kind of the crux of the situation. We use the tongue to bless the Lord and Father, but we also use it to curse people who are made in God's image. The blessing and the curse come out of the same mouth. My brothers, this must be wrong. <laughs> so anyway, you get the idea, right? It says, I love you, God. I hate you. <laughs> you know, it's, you know and, and you see that kind of thing. And, and it's so obvious when you do. You know, you can't say you love God and, and then go around hating your, your neighbor. Okay, so there's also some overall themes. One is the treatment of the poor and the corruption of riches. And then avoiding class distinction. And chapter 2 is a good description of this. My brothers, do not, list, do not let class distinction enter into your faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord. Now, suppose a man comes into the synagogue. He's well-dressed and with a gold ring on, and at the same time, a poor man comes in in shabby clothes. You take notice of the well-dressed man and say, come, come this way to the best seats. And you tell the poor man, stand over there. <laughs> you can sit on the floor or at my footrest. In making this distinction among yourselves, have you not used a corrupt standard? So anyway, you get the idea. Um, part of the reason is there's, with the uh, class distinction, it's an ongoing thing that is not much different than our present day. There's always this human tendency to think that we have class distinctions, you know, but that there is no class distinction in God's eyes, and so there should not be a class distinction in the church's eyes or in our eyes. And um, And he's using examples of, of the Old Testament, and this goes back to what I talked about before with this anawim type spirituality that people who are destitute and poor have nothing and they can depend on, they can't depend on themselves for anything, so they have to depend on God for everything. And so it worked itself into a type of spirituality where those who are the destitute poor can actually have a closer connection with God because they depend on God for everything, whereas the rich people would think that I don't need God because I'm self-sufficient. And so St. James is saying that, you know, not only should we not show favoritism, but, you know, as, as well-off people, we have to be careful 
because if we're not careful, we can become, you know, the arrogant rich person who doesn't think he needs God, and therefore, you know, that works to our destruction. And so he says, basically, life is short, okay, chapter 1, verse 9. But then after that, he says that the rich will glory in the exaltation of the poor if they are humble and just. So he's referencing Psalm 72, which talks about the humble triumphing at the end. And then also we've got Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 52. And uh, this is Mary saying, you know, the poor lifted up in the Magnificat. Now, the idea here is that let's say we're in heaven and we see someone who is poor, who has been exalted in their glory, then we should also exalt in their being lifted up. Now, that will happen if we have been humble and have been just in our own life. Does that make sense? So, so what he's basically saying, it's a warning to the rich that we have to um, do what we can to be humble and just because in the end, we should glory in anyone else who gets lifted up. Now, what happens a lot of times is people become resentful or jealous or envious, or we think, you know, well, wait a minute, I'm better off than that person, so, you know, I'm, I'm better than him because he's just a bum and I'm not. And so it should be an, it should be an invitation for us to uh, be humble. All right, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it's not hard to understand. It's just uh, kind of like a, a sermon. And so then he talks about faith, and he says, real faith does good deeds. All right, so chapter 1, verse 22. You must do what the word tells you and not just listen to it and deceive yourselves. I mean, you all know that. It's like if you, you can hear the truth, but if you're not doing anything with it, then it's, it's not doing any good. Um, also, we have chapter 2, verse 17. In the same way, faith, if good deeds do not go with it, it is quite dead. Okay, so if you have faith, you're naturally going to have, you know, good deeds. Also, if you look at chapter 2, verse 26, that's at the end there. As a body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds. You know, once again, this is in response um, to people who are taking St. Paul to an extreme and saying that faith is all about belief. If we believe in God, then that means we're saved. and We don't have to do anything. Well, the, the, the problem with that logic is, well, Satan believes in God. You know, so do the demons. And James even mentions that. So the, the idea here is that a necessary element of faith is good deeds. By the way, I should say incidentally, this has been one of those Catholic-Protestant things that go back and forth. Lately, the uh, uh, like the... Um, Lutherans and the Catholics got together and they, they spent all this time and they came to the conclusion that properly understood, both are consistent. And they were saying that the Protestants say, well, the Lutherans, I should say at this point, they say, if you have faith, you naturally will have the deeds as an outgrowth of that faith. Whereas the Catholics were saying, you don't separate the faith in the good works, but they're both kind of saying the same thing. So anyway, for what it's worth, but... Martin Luther and all that stuff, I know it's a complicated history and story, and I don't have time for that. But the main point for us, though, is it's not good enough to say, I believe in God. But you hear that all the time. You know, it's like, I believe in God. You know, it's like, well, big whoop. You know, the devil believes in God. What does that mean? You know, how has your life changed? You know, how do, how do, how do you live because of that truth? And what James is saying is, you know, look, if you believe in God, your good deeds have to demonstrate that belief. And that's why he's talking about all these different things that we should be doing, you know, like, like being just and being humble and taking care of uh, the poor and persevering in faith, avoiding temptation. And then he talks about um, how we need to also um, take care of all these other things. Okay, so earthly wisdom and true wisdom in chapter 3, verses 14 and 17. Anyone who is wise or understanding among you should, from a good life, give evidence of deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. But if at the heart you have the bitterness of jealousy or selfish ambition, do not be boastful or hide the truth from, 
hide the truth with lies. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but earthly, human, and devilish. Okay, so he's going to talk about these two types of wisdom. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, says, Where do these wars and battles between yourselves first start? Is it not precisely in the desires fighting inside your own selves? You want something, and you lack it, so you kill. You have an ambition that you cannot satisfy, so you fight to get that way by force. It is because you do not pray and you do not receive that when you do pray and you do not that when you do pray and do not receive, it's because you prayed wrongly, wanting to indulge your passions. And so one way to look at this, he's saying that so often um, we bring into our Christian experience the, the type of gain that we want and the things that we want as if we were still living in a worldly way. And so surprise, surprise, things go wrong. Um, in the church setting, it's pretty easy to see because when people come into the church and they try to use worldly ways to gain power influence and um, then they try to manipulate and and uh, bully then they're using worldly means to try to gain something in a church setting and then you also have the whole thing about the tongue the gossip and everything else Um, but if you think about most of the conflicts that happen in churches it tends to be prideful um, positions of power that people are fighting over rather than how can we love and serve God better? You know, I mean, it just typically is. And St. James' point here and his advice here is, if there are problems, it's because you're not applying Christian principles. You're applying worldly principles as if they are Christian principles. And surprise, surprise, there are problems when that happens. So the solution, of course, humility and true wisdom. Okay, so um, he also talks about sins of omission, Okay, so everyone who knows what is the right thing to do and does not do it commits a sin. All right, y'all remember sins of omission from the old days? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem that it gets talked about too much. And I, I got to say that, like, even in confessions, that people don't typically confess what they didn't do. You know, they usually look back and say, well, I got angry, I kicked the dog, and blah, 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 and that's about it, Father. You know, they don't, they don't really think about you know, what didn't I do? But, I mean, that should be part, every time we have an examination of conscience, we should be thinking, okay, what did I do that was wrong that I need to ask forgiveness for? And what was God trying to get me to do that I didn't do that I need to ask forgiveness for? Okay, then, then also it's, it's leading up to this idea of the coming of the Lord, which is consistent. You'll notice that theme through all these different letters that it all references everything about we are in this in-between time, and then when the Lord comes, we will have this new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, we're supposed to be about the Lord's business until he does come. And just kind of a constant theme. Well, he does it just as well. You too must be patient. Do not lose heart, because the Lord's coming will be soon. All right, so same sort of thing. You know, well, Jesus hasn't come yet, but he will come. In the meantime, get busy. You know, same sort of thing St. Paul talked about. Um, same thing that Peter's going to talk about. It's an ongoing thing. Oh, incidentally, if you go to uh, chapter 5, verse 14, we have the scriptural reference from anointing of the sick. So if any of you are in trouble, you should pray. And if anyone in good spirit should sing a psalm. If any of you who is ill, let's see, if any of you who is ill should send for the elders of the church, And they must anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord and pray over him. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up again. And if he committed any sins, he will be forgiven. So anyway, there's a scriptural reference for the anointing of the sick. Chapter 5, verse 14. If you notice, it it connects uh, anointing and healing with forgiveness of sins. You notice that? And that all goes back to the same... same, uh, pattern in scripture that when Jesus heals he doesn't just heal halfway he heals physically spiritually emotionally and across the board so you can't really say that you're healed and not include forgiveness of sin so the book of James just simply brings that out so anyway all right I think we're good so any questions about James or yeah
the book of James is included in the Protestant Bible. Um, originally, it's funny you should ask that because Martin Luther originally did not include it because he didn't like the idea that it said you're not saved by faith alone. So he didn't include it, but uh, Melanchthon, one of his followers, talked him into including it. So anyway, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much always been. Actually, he also, Martin Luther didn't like the book of Revelation either, so he didn't include that the first time and then later brought it back in. But, you know, history's complicated. So, Okay, so next week we have pastoral council. So we're not going to have the Bible study, but in two weeks we will. So we're going to go through 1 and 2 Peter, get through all the 1, 2, and 3 Johns, and then, and then if we're lucky, get into Revelation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.